Thanks, Simon. So uh, we come to the second of these papers before we have another break. Uh, and it's uh, Paulus, uh, who is also studying at the moment in Scotland, but is uh, from the Netherlands. So we've had Paulus from the Netherlands. We've had Lena at the beginning of the day from Lithuania, but also in Scotland now. So it's, a, it's good to have this being a European, Scottish, Welsh, English affair today. And Paulus, we look forward to your paper exploring uh, the Gospel of John and Torah, which is based on your PhD research, I think. Yeah, so I'm speaking to you from St. Andrews, where Elle was uh, working in the Baptist Church. Uh, before I came here, we overlapped for a year, so it was, uh, it was great to hear you, Elle. And uh, yes, my paper is very much uh, tethered to my PhD research, so let me start. What does the Gospel of John have to say about ethics? For decades, uh, very little research was produced on Johannine ethics. And for those familiar with the gospel, that may be unsurprising. Unlike Matthew, John has no Sermon on the Mount full of thought-provoking ethical imperatives. Unlike Luke, there is no Sermon on the Plain overflowing with good news for the poor. Instead, all the Johannine Jesus seems to be concerned about is that people believe in him as the one sent by the Father. To put it in the words of Rudolf Bultmann, Jesus, as the revealer of God, reveals nothing but that he is the revealer. In his contentious work, Ethics in the New Testament, Jack Sanders tries to capture the apparent lack of Johannine ethics in the following provocative words. Unlike the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, the Johannine Christian asks the man left half dead, Do you believe that Jesus is the one who came down from God? The Johannine Christian then tells him, if you believe, you will have eternal life, while the dying man's blood stains the ground. Not many scholars today endorse Jack Sanders' extremely pessimistic outlook on Johannine ethics. Instead, in the last decade or so, the pendulum has swung towards an exceptionally positive assessment of ethics in John. This is illustrated by an abundant production of scholarly monographs and essays in this field. To mention just a few, Rethinking the Ethics of John, a collection of essays edited by Jan van der Watt and Ruben Zimmermann in 2012. Johannine Ethics, edited by Sherry Brown and Christopher Skinner, 2017. Mimesis in the Johannine Literature, a study in Johannine Ethics by Cornelis Benema, 2017. Ethics in the Gospel of John by Shin Suku in 2019. And last but not least, A Grammar of the Ethics of John, a 700-page monograph, the first out of three by Jan van der Watt in 2019. Uh, ethics clearly is a hot topic in Johannine studies. So what are we to make of this? Was Sanders' critique entirely unfounded? Did scholars simply miss the obvious ethical teaching in John for such a long time? Although the scholarly works just mentioned have demonstrated the presence of much, albeit perhaps more implicit, ethical guidance in John's narrative, I believe it is undisputable that Jesus' public teaching in John is less explicitly ethical. The main purpose of Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 2 to 12 is that people will come to believe in him. Now, in today's paper, I contend that the lack of explicit ethical teaching in John is tightly bound up 
with the Johannine emphasis on believing in Jesus. For John, believing in Jesus as the one sent from the Father is the essential requirement for living a truly ethical life. True moral transformation requires believing in Jesus. Let me illustrate this with a text from John 6. At the outset of the Bread of Life discourse in John 6 verse 28, the Jews ask Jesus, what shall we do that we may perform the works, ta'erga, plural, of God? Jesus' response probably surprises his hearers. This is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's John 6, verse 28 to 29. Now, with many Johannine scholars, I take the expression, the works of God, the plural expression, as a variation on the expression, the works of the Torah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That is, the works of God refers to ethically sound actions, works that are in accordance with God's will as expressed in Torah. In other words, the Jews ask Jesus an ethically loaded question. How can we perform deeds in accordance with Torah? John's Jesus does not answer by specifying the greatest commandment of the law like Jesus does in Matthew 22, or by referring to the Ten Commandments like happens in Mark 10. Instead, he reduces the plural works of God to a singular work of God and identifies this work as believing in him as the one sent by the Father. To rephrase Jesus' answer, do you want to perform actions in accordance with God's will? Believe in me. Now, this obviously raises the question, how does believing in Jesus relate to performing actions in accordance with God's will? How does the work of God relate to the works of God? Now, this is where, in my understanding of John, the Spirit comes into play. The remainder of this paper... I will argue that the Spirit is the one that connects the work of God with the works of God. My argument is quite simple, consisting of two premises and a conclusion. The first premise, Jesus bestows the Spirit upon those who believe in him, i.e. upon those who perform the work of God. Premise two, the Spirit enables believers to act fully in accordance with God's will i.e. to perform the works of God. Therefore, performing the work of God, believing in Jesus, is fundamental to performing spirit-empowered works of God. So let me go through these um, two premises. The first one, Jesus bestows the Spirit upon those who believe in him. Now, the first part of this premise, Jesus bestows the Spirit, is, is hard to contest. For example, John the Baptist presents Jesus at the outset of the gospel as the one who baptizes with the Spirit. John 1.33, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this one is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, John portrays Jesus as the temple from which the streams of living water representing the Spirit flow. And when the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt Jesus bestows a spirit. The second part of this premise is also plainly expressed in the fourth gospel, most evidently in John 7, verse 37 to 39. 
Now, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this concerning the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were about to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. John is clear. Jesus bestows the Spirit upon those who believe in him. Now, the second premise, the Spirit enables the believers to act fully in accordance with God's commandments. This second premise is less openly articulated in John's Gospel. In what follows, I will briefly examine two passages that are essential for upholding this premise. I contend that in these passages, John draws on a particular understanding of the work of the Spirit expressed in Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to, 20, to 27. So Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27. And I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you to your land. And I will sprinkle on you pure water, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And I will cleanse you from all of your idols. And I will give a new heart to you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give to you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will make it so that you will go in my rules and my regulations you will remember and you will do them. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Ezekiel, he is quite a grumpy prophet. He does not think much of the moral capability of the Israelites. According to him, they are in exile because of their consistent failure to act by God's will. And there's no hope that they will ever change. For Ezekiel, it is not enough for God to write his laws on the hearts of the people, as for example, Jeremiah envisions. No, Israel's stubbornness requires a more radical solution. They need a heart transplant. To put it in the words of Michael Lyons, uh, Israel needs an ontological transformation that guarantees obedience. To that end, Yahweh will put a new heart in the Israelites. He will cleanse them with water, and he will give them a new spirit and make them obey his commandments. To rephrase Ezekiel's rhetoric, you don't want to follow my commandments, I will make you follow them. No matter the force of Ezekiel's prophecy, it does leave the reader with substantial questions. When will all of this happen? How will it happen? The text leaves significant gaps. Now, the later Jewish writings fill in these gaps when referring to this specific prophecy. The book of Jubilees, for example, refers to Ezekiel's promise and claims its fulfillment will come in the eschaton after a collective confession of sin. Jubilees 1, 32, 33. Qumran's community rule also alludes to this passage and claims it will come to pass at the appointed time when God will put an end to the existence of injustice coinciding with God's new creation. So what about the Gospel of John? Does John also draw on Ezekiel 36 in his understanding 
of the work of the Spirit. Now I'm going to look at two passages in John. The first one is John 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. First key passage is Jesus' nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, an esteemed Jewish teacher. The conversation starts promisingly. Nicodemus addresses Jesus as a rabbi and acknowledges he must be a teacher who has come from God because of the signs Jesus performs. In response to this acknowledgement, Jesus answers, Amen, amen, I say to you, if someone is not born again or from above, Anothen, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. Now, the ambiguous Greek anothen can be rendered as again or from above. Nicodemus's answer indicates he takes anothen in the sense of again. However, in response, Jesus repeats his statement, clarifying what he means by anothen. And this is verse 5. Amen, amen, I say to you, if someone is not born from water and spirit, ex hudatos kai pneumatos, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of God. Reading these two statements in parallel shows that the phrase ex hudatos kai pneumatos, out of water and spirit, interprets anothen. Being born from above means being born from water and spirit. I'm confident most people here may have preached once on John 3 and are familiar with various interpretations for the phrase water and spirit. Among these, I'm persuaded that John uses this phrase to allude to Ezekiel 36. First of all, John uses the key words water and spirit that are also central to the passage in Ezekiel. And second, in both John and Ezekiel, water and spirit are instrumental in accomplishing something that is, humanly speaking, impossible. Third, in both Ezekiel and John, the initiative for the spiritual regeneration through water and spirit lies outside the subject. Ezekiel makes it abundantly clear Yahweh takes the initiative in this act of regeneration. In John, the middle passive form of the verb ganao indicates that the act of being born from water and spirit is dependent on an external agent. Now, read in light of John 1, 12 to 13, which also uses the verb ganao, this external agent is God. Fourth, um, if you're unsure whether John ever uses Ezekiel, um, my handout may be helpful here, but the list of examples is too long to mention. And fifth, uh, as the examples from Jubilees and Qumran's community rules show, this particular prophecy from Ezekiel 36 was popular among other Jewish, early Jewish writings. All these reasons, in my opinion, increase the probability that by using the phrase born from water and spirit, John draws on Ezekiel 36. So now let us read John 3 against the background of Ezekiel 36. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that entering the kingdom of God is only possible for those who, in fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, have been born from water and spirit. After Jesus sets uh, this spiritual rebirth as a prerequisite for entering God's kingdom, Nicodemus calls out, how can these things be? John 3 verse 9. How can one be born of water and spirit? 
In the subsequent monologue, Jesus answers the how question of Nicodemus. Only now the expression eternal life replaces the language of the kingdom of God. Our time lacks to explore the details of this argument, but the various structural parallels between John 3, verse 3 to 5, and 3, verse 14 to 16 point in this direction. Uh, Jörg Frey, uh, an eminent Johannine scholar who takes John's kingdom language as depending on the synoptic tradition, puts it as follows. We must assume that the evangelist, when phrasing by himself, uses other terms, i.e. eternal life, to express the same ideas, i.e. the kingdom of God. How then can one be born from above, of water and spirit? How can one enter the kingdom of God? John's answer is by believing in the exalted Son of Man, John 3, verse 13 to 15. Only by believing in Jesus can one receive eternal life, i.e. enter into God's kingdom. Only by believing in the one who came from above can one be born from above. Now, there's one other passage in John that I believe draws on Ezekiel's prophecy of water and spirit. This is John 14, verse 15 to 21. John 14, verse 15 to 21, for those who want to look it up. Now, this passage contains the gospel's first paraclete saying. And this paraclete saying is sandwiched in between a double correlation between love for Jesus and obeying his commandments. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, those who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. John presents loving Jesus and observing his commandments as intimately connected. They go hand in hand. It is therefore significant that precisely in between these sayings, John mentions the coming of the Spirit or paraclete. So now verse 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will send, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete to be with you forever. This is a spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Jesus reassures assures his disciples that once he leaves, the spirit will be in them. And although the text does not spell out how, these verses clearly relate the presence of the Spirit with the observance of Christ's commandments. The Greek conjunction kago at the beginning of um, verse 16 implies a logical connection between verse 15 and 16. This association between the indwelling Spirit and the observance of Christ's commandments draws the attentive reader once again to Ezekiel 36. Although the textual connection is perhaps less obvious than in John 3, this passage provides further evidence that John understands the work of the Spirit along the lines of Ezekiel 36. That is, the Spirit enables those that indwells to live in accordance with God's will, to perform the works of God. To repeat my second premise, the Spirit enables believers to act fully in accordance with God's will. So a short summary, conclusion, and, and a short reflection. 
What does the Gospel of John have to say about ethics? Why does the Johannine Jesus focus his public teaching on the revelation of his own identity vis-a-vis -vis the Father? And why is there so little explicit ethical teaching in Jesus's public ministry compared to the synoptic tradition? In this paper, I have sought to answer, I've sought the answer to these questions uh, in John's conception of the Spirit. I contend that John understands the transforming work of the Spirit along the lines of Ezekiel 36. Additionally, John asserts believing in Jesus is the prerequisite to receiving the Spirit. It follows then that believing in Jesus is fundamental to true moral transformation. One first has to perform the work of God in order to perform the works of God. I think this Johannine logic explains the lack of explicit ethical teaching in the first half of the Gospel. It is interesting that only after Jesus gathers with those who have believed in him, John 13, uh, verse 1, and only after Judas leaves, John 13, verse 30, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment, John 13, 34, and subsequently, in chapter 14, his commandments, plural. That is, Jesus' most explicit ethical teaching is reserved for those who believe in him i.e. Those, those who will receive the Spirit, i.e. those enabled to live out Christ's commandments. Why would you give commandments to those unable to observe them? Yes, the Johannine Jesus is concerned with ethics, but the fundamental ethical imperative for those outside the circle of Jesus' disciples is this, believe in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Paulus, for that great paper. Uh, I can see a question there um, from Steve Hone. But before we come to that, it, it made me think that um, uh, John's, John's ethic of, or Jesus's ethic in John is, is almost very Harawassian. It's not does Jesus have, a, have an ethic, Jesus is an ethic, which is believing in him. And so my question might be, often, I guess, when we think about the ethics of Jesus, we might go first to Matthew and Luke what might it mean on the basis of your analysis if we started with John and John's ethic of, uh, with Jesus before we move to Matthew and Luke? Would that change anything? Hmm. Well, this is a very good, I think your observation about um, in the connection with how it was is, is very uh, adequate. Cause I think, yeah, definitely Jesus in some sense em embodies ethics in, in the gospel of John. And so you see that, sort of the new commandment that Jesus gives, the fundamental commandment in, in the Gospel of John is a commandment to imitate Jesus. And so that commandment to imitate Jesus basically makes the whole first part of the Gospel where Jesus may not give any explicit ethical teaching into an embodied ethics of who Jesus is, how he acts, uh, and how he interacts with, with other people. Um, and so, yeah, trying to read John first and then, and then go to Matthew and Luke, uh, that, would be, that would be a very, I mean, read through John, I suppose, um, the motive, you could, you could take the motive of imitation from John and, and read 
Matthew and Luke through that sense as well, so that when Jesus gives certain explicit ethical commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, you may also wonder, well, does he live this out himself? In his, uh, does he embody this in his own uh, life? And so that might be a benefit of doing it that way. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. It was just throwing it out there. Yeah. Steve, I wonder whether you want to unmute and ask uh, your question of Paulus. Yeah, thank you, Paulus. Um, um, the, your, your reading of the Ezekiel passage suggests that the promises of inevitable moral transformation, um, the people can't do what they should, so God changes their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and now they will do what they should. And that seems to be what Ezekiel's saying. Now, if mm -hmm. the Johannine passages you're picking up on are referencing this Ezekiel passage, the implication would be that those who have been born again of water and the spirit, stroke, whatever, um, are now morally perfect, necessarily mm. so. Do you think that's what John is saying? And if not, what fancy footwork is he doing with Ezekiel to avoid it? <laughs> well, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I would say that, well, for me at least, it, it is clear that that on the one hand, John is drawing on Ezekiel 36. I think that's the case at least I've tried to make in this paper. But on the other hand, it is also clear that for Jesus, even in the farewell discourses, when he is gathered with his disciples who will soon receive the Spirit, he still doesn't, you know, he's, he still teaches them in a way that supposes that they are not morally perfect and that they will not be morally perfect. So there still is this sense of abide in me, remain in the vine. Um, and and so, so even though John uses Ezekiel, I would, I would say that he, even though he, he clearly likes uh, Ezekiel's logic, and I think it is important for him uh, that the spirit enables moral transformation, I think he still subsumes it under his eschatology, which is, you know, very much uh, already now, but not yet um, eschatology. And so I think if you read John's reuse of Ezekiel 36 through the lens of his eschatology, you can sort of see how he tries to balance the logic. Uh, that's what I would say. Um, we've got a question by Marion. I think just to finish, we've got about um, yeah, a minute or two. Marion, if you'd like to ask your question. Well, yeah, thank you. I, I, as I've said there, I missed the first part of your paper, so my apologies if you did uh, talk to this at the beginning. But I just wondered, what does this phrase, believe in Jesus, mean? What, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, in fact, I didn't talk about that in, uh, in this paper. Um, so I would say that at least for John, I mean, what, yeah, what the Greek verb pistuo means in, in different New Testament writings may, be, uh, may vary. But I would say that for John, the consensus is that it clearly refers to much more than, uh, than just some sort of rational endorsement of uh, the acceptance that Jesus is the one sent by the Father, but that it very much has uh, deep relational connotations. And, and so, yeah, it's about a, a full, a whole holistic disposition rather than a rational uh, statement. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I was just wondering how it related to the idea of, of 
faith as a theological virtue. That was, mm. um, that was what I was wondering. So thank you. Thanks, Mary. Okay. Um, it, for those who might need a break before the last session, I'm going to say go and start your break. But Ruth has got a question, which I think is a good question. So, for, uh, Paulus, if you're happy to answer Ruth's question, Ruth, if you're happy to answer it, those who, who want to can stay along for the answer to that. But if you want to start your break, start your break and we will be back at 4.20. Um, thank you. I, I just found myself thinking, following on from Steve's question, what about the people who um, are not born of the water and the spirit and don't want to be in that they are of other faiths or, you know, convinced atheists or secularists or whatever. And I get very uncomfortable when church people found as though they have a monopoly on doing good um, mm -hmm. and that somehow, you know, Christian run things are always better than non-Christian run things because they are Christian per se. So I, I'm just feeling, I'm trying to understand whether you would think John is trying to push it that far or not. Yeah, no, I don't think John is pushing it that far. In fact, there are two examples that I can think of from John's gospel that imply ethical behavior from those not born of water and spirit. So one is at the end of John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about those who are practicing the truth and are coming towards the light. Um, John 3, verse somewhere, verse 30 or something. Uh, and then, I mean, one of the magnificent episodes in John with the man born blind in John 9, uh, he, he's already, he already defends Jesus' claim um, to be the Messiah bef uh, before... Wait, no, he already defends Jesus before he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and so in both of those cases, we see people who are sort of in, this, in the scheme of things, not properly born of water and spirit, but already acting uh, ethically. And so I, I, I don't think John would negate that. I would, I would just say that, um, that for John, the promise of Ezekiel 36 is, is very real. And uh, that he saw contemporary early Jewish writings interacting with what, you know, with that prophecy, when it would come to pass, how it would come to pass. And, and he sees the fulfillment uh, in those, uh, he sees that prophecy coming to pass, uh, coming to partial fulfillment in those who now believe in Jesus uh, and are therefore uh, yeah, enabled by the Spirit to to perform the works of God. Thank you. Okay. Um, so we're at our break. Thank you, Paulus, for your paper.